When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno from Real Vision, sending to you live Thursday, the 5th of January. We are still digesting the meeting minutes out of the Federal Reserve yesterday, but we have quite some interesting market action to unpack again today. And we are going to ask the question, are we going from a melt-up to a meltdown? And um, I'm as confused as Mr. Jack Sparrow on the meme here. We have a great guest today, a guy that I've known for a while, and um, he's gone from expecting a melt-up, and he was actually right about that, to now expecting a melt-down. Mr. Michael Guyot, the Portfolio Manager at Toroso Investment. Great to see you again, my friend. Uh, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Jack Sparrow, but I'm more a fan of you. <laughs> well, big words. Um, but Michael... I mean, the last time we spoke, and I know you know the exact date because you've used the clip quite a few times on Twitter, you said that we should expect a melt-up into year-end. And you were right, but now you expect a meltdown. What's changed? Well, to be clear, I said, I think as I recall, I said into early December based yeah. on signals. And look, we can quibble about the term melt-up from here to tomorrow, but it's ultimately about conditions. And you did have a sizable move. I think the S&P went up. 17%. Some people think that's not a melt-up. If you annualize that, that's a pretty damn good number, folks. Um, but then, as as the thing that concerned me throughout the, the advance in November, it really happened starting mid-November, Treasury started acting again like a counter-risk-off asset after all this FTX started coming out. And you end up see, still seeing a lot of weakness in lumber, which was kind of inconsistent with the idea of things still being positive. So then I switched, I think, December 2nd or 3rd, put a whole long thread out, got seen by 4 million people on Twitter saying, I now expect you know conditions favoring an imminent stock market crash. You didn't have a crash, but you did have, have uh, you know, unless I checked the fifth worst December in history, which includes some of the years during the Great Depression. It was a pretty awful you know, December for what's supposed to be a seasonally strong period for equities. Um, I, I always go back to, I know there's a lot of obsession around calls and terms. This is ultimately about, is it sunny or is it rainy? Is it a favorable environment to take risk in or a less favorable environment to take risk in. I still think, broadly speaking, we're in an environment which is going to be very challenging to be confident in a real bullish move. And I have to tell you, the way that lumber keeps on selling off, it's almost like you're going to have a complete stopping of all housing construction and activity. I mean, the way that lumber prices have been unrelenting on the downside is a massive disinflationary force, just like natural gas going down, just like oil. I know we're going to talk about that. I think, as I alluded to on Twitter, on my Lead Lag Report account, we're going to go from the duration crisis of last year to a credit crisis this year, from inflation fear to default risk, and ultimately what could be a deflation shock that nobody sees coming. Michael, you talk about lumber a lot. So why don't we talk about lumber a bit today as well? You've elaborated your thesis um, in a paper, a award-winning paper, actually. Um, the lumber to gold ratio is apparently important for risk. 
Why is that? Please elaborate. So, okay, so so to be clear, analysts, I, I, I have three funds. They're all variations of risk on, risk off. They all got slammed, not because of the signals that they track, lumber to gold in the case of my Roro ETF, but because treasuries failed to be the safe haven last year for the first time in history. But the idea basically is very simple, right? It's lumber is tied to housing, right? It's, it's, it's The average home has around 16,000 board feet of lumber. Lumber has been unrelenting on the downside. You compare it against gold, which has had a nice run for the last month and a half or so, which also is a bit of a risk-off asset that tends to tell you about uh, higher volatility dynamics, that on average volatility for stocks is higher when lumber is weak relative to gold. It's lower when lumber is strong relative to gold. And that risk on risk off is ultimately about volatility conditions and dynamics changing. Risk on lower volatility, risk off higher volatility. So you look at lumber to gold, that tells you conditions favor higher volatility for stocks. You look at utilities against the stock market, another signal of risk on risk off of volatility. Utilities still, for the most part, very, very strong, suggesting that you're in a high volatile uh, scenario for equities. And again, that matters because high volatility tends to be the condition you need for major tail events, crashes, corrections, bear markets. I don't know if the average consumer really understands just how bad housing is likely going to be. It's not to say that you're going to have a crash like what you saw in the lead up to the great financial crisis, but the reality is most transactions take place in the spring and summer periods. So nobody really understands um, quite just quite how much demand has fallen off because there aren't that many transactions to begin with from a seasonality perspective. And listen, if you're going to break inflation, you've got to break housing. So if lumber is telling you and warning you that housing is going to be weak, you better believe that that's probably another catalyst for stocks to go lower. I was an equity partner at a real estate private equity company in Europe until lately. I ran out the door and now I'm doing interviews with you. I guess that's telling as well, Michael, right? Um, but um, in, in the case of housing, uh, the feedback I get a lot when I say that housing is due for a substantial drawdown next year or some rather this year, I keep forgetting that we are already in 23, is that there's a lack of supply. And I know you have some comments to make on that uh, feedback I get all the time. Well, th there's a lack of supply, but you never know how supply can change if suddenly you end up having some forced sales of second and third homes, right? which I think is probably going to be another wave, right? Possibly. But I agree with you, right? It doesn't make for a strange dynamic because you can argue that there's almost like an equilibrium. Demand falls off, but also inventory keeps dropping. But at some point, I suspect you're going to have sort of a, a forced dynamic of liquidations by a lot of these asset holders that were using zero interest rate policy to effectively make these assets income-producing uh, vacation rentals and things like that. Um, look, the, the, at the core of it, this is, this is the, the, the real point here. I think the market is underestimating the potential that the Fed overdid it already, okay? That they hiked rates too far too fast. That disinflation might turn into outright deflation. And I will say it is interesting, right? I was talking to somebody just a little bit earlier today. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago. Let's say, okay, that the war with Ukraine ends. Let's say Russia just stops, and, or at least there's some kind of a pause for a prolonged period of time. What do you think happens to commodities under that scenario? Well, probably they're going to sell off because there will be an expectation then that you might have flooding of natural gas by Russia and oil and all the commodities that hurt, got hurt, fertilizer. Okay. So now you've got potentially a downward shock in commodities because of that possibility. You can't say it's a zero possibility. That possibility that Russia stops with Ukraine against very elevated interest rates. 
that to me seems really interesting as a scenario, right? Because then you could have completely collapsing inflation expectations as commodities collapse on that possible cessation of war. And now you've got very high rates, which are tightening uh, against already disinflationary pressures coming from the cost push side. So you have a really interesting dynamic. I'd argue that a lot of the things that people are thinking will be bullish, ending of war, China reopening, may end up being actually quite the opposite relative to where rates are today. Yeah. And um, speaking of a potential ceasefire in Ukraine, Putin actually ordered a surprise 36-hour ceasefire. It's obviously related to Russian Christmas. But uh, in any case, who knows whether it's an early warning signal that we actually get some kind of a frozen conflict or uh, even a ceasefire in you uh, in Ukraine. But Michael, you keep talking about the commodity market as if it is a leading indicator for other asset classes. Do you think it is? Depends on which commodities. I mean, mm. coffee is leading in terms of my ability to stay awake from that standpoint. Um, <laughs> as, as, a, as a soft commodity. Um, uh, it, so, okay, a couple of things. So first of all, the... Um, you look at natural gas, you look at oil, you look at copper, you look at the industrial metals, you look at lumber, everything's screaming the same thing, right? It's very clear. And everyone that was so bullish on all these areas, they've now, it's a lot of these areas have gone around trip. So I do think that if commodities keep on crashing, and you can argue that some of them are in crashes now, that that's a leading indicator of an inflation crash, right? Now, I get it. The service side of, of, the inflation equation is probably still going to stay elevated. But I promise you that if you keep on having layoffs, that's also going to abate pretty quickly. It's funny, I put out that tweet a little bit earlier today, got a lot of attention. It's like the Fed screwed up by putting too much uh, liquidity in the system with COVID. Uh, and now they're answering their fuck up by simply causing people to lose their jobs by hiking rates. So it's like <laughs> the, the, the poor and the middle class keep getting screwed no matter what the Fed does, right? But the, the point here is on the commodities that to the extent that commodities are telling you about cost push inflationary pressure is really doing a quick uh, about face and that you end up having some real disinflationary pressure there against already elevated rates with the Fed still wanting to be hawkish. That just seems to me like a bad, bad situation for risk assets because the Fed then is what? Going to start lowering rates to counter oil prices, to counter lumber prices while they're still talking up rates? They're moving too slowly and not reacting fast enough to market prices. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. If we look at the most recent meeting minutes from the Federal Reserve yesterday, they keep pushing a narrative that rates will remain higher for longer. Um, it's very obvious that they dislike easing financial conditions. So if we get that crash that you predict in equity markets, will that lead the Fed to change its stance? Well, and again, it's, that's the mile marker. I'm simply saying the conditions are there. So I always. Hmm. Caution on the word predictions, right? And calls, Fair. but 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 let's. First of all, the, when you're hit, at the core, you're, hit, you're asking the question about a pivot, right? So, and I have that chart out, and and I recreated it with more data. But you know, listen, historically, Fed pivots are, are are bearish. More often than not, the bulk of drawdowns in equities tend to happen when the Fed funds rate starts turning 
uh, going back in time. That's not to say that's a guarantee, of course, but history would suggest the probabilities are not good for the Fed uh, 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 pivoting, which would happen after a crash. Um, it could. Look, I keep going back to I think what really will drive the Fed's um, policy is not the stock market. It's credit spreads, right? So it's ultimately about default risk. So spreads, as you know, as you've written about too, right, have stayed fairly tight. I think tighter than most people would have imagined, given how fast rates rose last year, largely because of duration. If you get default risk premiums increasing in a meaningful way, that's going to cause the Fed to pivot. And it's interesting because I, I shared that chart. If you look at uh, credit spreads relative to the VIX, it's a pretty tight correlation. Usually when you have credit spreads blow out, volatility in equities will rise. You get these, these real crashes in equities, and people think it's the crash in equities that causes the pivot. It's actually the spread widening that causes the pivot. That's coming, and it has to happen. The Fed probably wants to see some companies go broke, go bankrupt. I mean, there are a lot of inefficiencies in the system. There are a lot of zombie companies that should not be around. At some point, they will be taken out just on the rollover of higher interest expense. Um, the question is, can they keep it contained to only a select part of the economy versus having a contagion effect, which history would suggest they're pretty poor at preventing. If we look at the labor market right now, we've seen a pamphlet of announcements from tech companies again this week with new layoffs, uh, but it seems contained to that particular sector so far. Would you expect contagion to other sectors throughout the next couple of quarters as a consequence of this? Probably because the retail side is is pretty awful. Right? If you just look at the retailer stock performance, you know it's it's not. Yeah, if, if markets are discounting mechanisms, retailers are telling you consumers are in trouble. And again, housing tells you consumers are in trouble, right? So you probably are going to see a delayed response right, in terms of layoffs by other companies, other industries outside of tech that are much more domestic as opposed to global and multinational. Um, again, the question is going to be how far reaching okay, and what the Fed wants to see. It's like if the you know envision a scenario where unemployment goes to five six percent, but inflation's still at five percent. Will the Fed then want a higher unemployment rate? Uh, you know, it, it becomes kind of an interesting question as far as where that sweet spot of unemployment is relative to inflation, which you know kind of goes back to the Laffer curve a little bit. But I'm sure there's there's a lot of complications that go into Fed policy when it comes to the the consumer demand side of things, the layoffs that come from non tech companies. And then where their uh, rates are, are meant to stick around, stick around at. Mm. Speaking of the labor market, should we get this series of layoffs? Um, it probably means recession. And to me, this is probably the most well-announced recession in modern history. I mean, everybody agrees. Uh, and I guess the contrarian take is now to call for a soft landing or a very, very short-lived recession. But I wanted to play a soundbite for you from a discussion we had with David Higgins um, uh, earlier um, this week. And um, he basically calls for a prolonged recession as a consequence of some of the dynamics that we can currently monitor in markets and uh, in economic data. So let's listen to David and get back to that discussion. There will be a recession, um, maybe shallow to moderate is how I I'd describe it. Uh, and the other thing to watch out for is it for is is for persisting longer than people expect. People are expecting H one of next year. Uh, we could really really be looking at a full year recession. The entire interview with David Higgins is already available at the Real Vision platform for our essential subscribers. But Michael, a prolonged recession. How does that sound to you? 
uh, not exquisite, probably more <laughs> atrocious. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting because you said it correctly, right? It's like one of the most anticipated recessions you can possibly imagine. But that's anticipated in terms of saying it's a recession. Not in, uh, it doesn't really address magnitude or duration, right? It's just sort of like, oh, we're going to have a recession, but I don't think there's any real consensus around depth and time. I do think there's an argument to me that, yeah, that the time is going to take a while. We're probably in a prolonged bear market and maybe a prolonged recession uh, that could be deep in terms of um, the length of time it takes, kind of a combination of the two. And I say that again because housing will take time to, to flush out, right? You don't have to necessarily have a growing economy and an accelerating housing market, but it certainly doesn't help if housing is decelerating, right? And it doesn't help if the Fed keeps rates elevated for a while, and it doesn't help when you have credit disruption okay, that we're seeing across the board. Um, and keep in mind, you do have this other kind of lingering tail uh, event out there potentially when it comes to sovereign a sovereign debt crisis. The dollar now is starting to show some signs of life after that that big correction, which initially cut off the tail risk, but maybe that tail risk is still there. So any number of these things could result in an environment that will be challenging for a long time. Now, that's not to say be overly bearish. That's not to say uh, be overly concerned. It's just to say that we're probably probably entering a, a an environment where people just have to work more, harder, and survive long enough to see the other end of it. And I think it's also how you end up getting rid of a lot of, of a lot of the uneducated speculation, which I still think is in the market. I don't know about you, Andreas, but I still see on Twitter a lot of silly, silly things when it comes to memes and and rocket ships and moon and cryptocurrencies. It's like all the stuff that I was ranting on in 2021, I'm seeing it again. Uh, like that really worries me. I, I keep going back to it's never a generational buy until you lose a full generation to investing. And that's only going to happen if you have some kind of deep and or long recession. I, I tend to agree. Uh, and I've introduced the so-called board ape rule when it comes to the Fed reaction function. I think Justin Bieber bought his board ape NFT for around $1.3 million and it's now worth 69000 US dollars spot price. So we are now $69,000 from a pivot. <laughs> That's kind of my take. Uh, I, I mean, um, I perfectly agree with you. That is essentially between the lines what the Fed writes in the summary from yesterday. Um, they will keep hiking interest rates until that excessive risk taking is gone. Right. Um, and, and that should bring with, with it the return of the flight to safety trade, which I keep going back to that chart I've shown many times on Twitter, which you can show the top 20 drawdowns in equities, right? So you go back to 1961, biggest declines for stocks, peak to trough. Last year was the only time in history where long-duration treasuries lost more money than stocks in a top drawdown for stocks. But the assumption on that chart on the very far right is that the drawdown for the stock market is over. If it's not, the stock market goes down more, and treasuries in the fullness of the stock market drawdown could be down less. There's a period in there in that chart, 1968 to 1970 where both treasuries and stocks are down heavy, but treasuries still were down a lot less than equities. Now, selfishly, I'd love to see that because you know, the, the hell for me last year was that all my funds were largely risk off. They all went through a nasty drawdown. People think they went through a drawdown because I was being in stocks. It was because they were in treasuries because purposely treasuries more often than not act as the safe haven. Any kind of further recession, any kind of further drawdown in equities. I suspect this time around, you'll start to see, as we're seeing even today, treasuries act as the counter. That is the one positive 
not just for me and hopefully my investors and hopefully the ability to come back with my funds, but that's a positive for asset allocators. Because if you keep being in an environment that only favors uh, the energy sector, which has its own risks, and you end up having treasuries still act as uh, equities like they did last year, at least if treasuries start to counter, there's somewhere to go. And that's what the Fed wants with higher rates. We have an absolutely tremendous question from one of our loyal members in relation to this exact discussion. Uh, Ralph is asking you, in hindsight, what was the anti-fragile trade that would have protected your portfolio last year, given the atypical behavior of U.S. Treasuries? It would have been the the trade, the anti-fragile trade that would have never worked ever in history, yeah, or rarely works in history. So I keep going back to what worked last year: energy. Or mm. Utilities were actually the real interesting play. I mean, utilities tend to act as a safe haven sector within the stock market. They tend to go down a lot less during major drawdowns. I have that chart also. Last year was the only year in a major drawdown where utilities massively outperformed treasuries in a risk-off phase. Which again, goes back to opportunity set, right? But the point about um, shorting and cash, which worked last year, that was, you can argue, the anti-fragile opportunity set. It doesn't work over time. I don't care what anybody says. It does, you try to do any kind of systematic backtest where your expression of risk off is to short, it fails miserably because of false signals. You do any kind of backtest where your risk off expression is cash, it fails miserably because of false signals. This is why market timing doesn't work because the alternative is either the asset you're timing or cash. The problem with cash and shorting is that if you're wrong, in the case of shorting, you lose money. In the case of cash, you have no chance at compounding. There's a reason why the best risk-off plays tend to be utilities, treasuries, the dollar, and gold. Treasuries at least now have yield, which means if you're wrong playing defense, now at least you can make money because they're positive carry, right? So it, it, it's, there's nothing that's ever truly anti-fragile because even anti-fragile opportunity plays have their own cycles. Last year was one of the most historic environments you could imagine in the interaction of treasuries against stock market volatility. That was the most fragile trade last year. I created funds around that, <laughs> that trade and went through severe drawdown. But at the same time, if you go with me that it's an anomaly, which all the data I keep showing proves it is, that not only is that unlikely to repeat, but that may actually be the real opportunity. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We have another question, uh, which is a great question when we talk about a potential meltdown. We've seen quite a rebound in Chinese stocks as a consequence of this reopening trade. The question is, and it's for both of us, do you think this run-up in Chinese stocks will last even if we get a meltdown in, for example, US stocks? Okay, so first of all, I'm going to argue that China reopening is massively disinflationary. Which makes sense, right? Because you know, now you got if the if the if the shutdown was was the source of the supply chain disruptions, now you reopen. Now you get maybe a flood of of new goods, right? And consumerism is not as strong in China as it is in the West. So the argument that suddenly people are going to be you know 
revenge buying, I don't think that's going to be anywhere near as strong as, as what we've experienced in, in the state. Um, I, look, in high volatility spike, everything correlates to one globally. Right? So even in the case of like the lumber to gold relationship, and I've shown that in, in studies, even if you're sitting in Australia or China or anywhere, because that's US-centric around lumber, that still tells you about something that might happen to the Chinese stock market or to the Australian stock market because you have a VIX spike in the US, you better believe everything spikes volatility-wise everywhere else in the world. So I don't think you can have a divergence of equity performance because likely because of the interrelationships of global economies and markets to each other, you get some kind of major decline in US equities. Doesn't matter how well the China reopening is going, that, that stock market gets shut down. If we look at this Chinese case, I, I mean, I've been pondering lately whether it is at all such a bull case. Um, and the thing I've been pondering the most about is that if we assume that China is a rational player, and I think they are, then I would assume that even in a, in a scenario where the demand increases materially in China for commodities, let's say that, then why shouldn't they do the exact same same thing as Joe Biden did during the fall? Release the reserves. They have plenty of reserves, both in energy terms, but also in metals terms. Uh, and I guess that could unleash that exact disinflationary wave alongside easing of supply chains, et cetera, that you are calling for as well. So it's not, it's not a straightforward playbook if you're playing the um, Chinese reopening, and it's certainly not necessarily a bull case. Yeah, I, I agree, agree with that. Yeah. Very well said. And, and, and I'll, you're exactly right. And it's, it is curious. So they, they basically are, 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 are relenting on all these COVID restrictions and, and natural gas is collapsing. Mm. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it's a centralized economy. Of course, they've planned for this. Right. I mean, they've bought ahead of it. But in any case, Michael, um, the big question for 2023 is whether we get correlations restored. We get treasuries back as the safe haven, etc. And if you ask me, ultimately, it's all about inflation. Um, as far as I can backtest, an inflation level in PCE call terms below 4% means that correlations will be restored. So the base case is a, a correlation. Um, restore, being restored uh, this year. So what could go wrong with that view? That's also interesting to discuss for 23. Well, I mean, what, what could go wrong is that the volatility of inflation kicks back in. Inflation suddenly has another spike, right? And then you're kind of back to the same hell. But I keep going back to in the 70s, treasuries during major drawdowns for stocks still lost less money than stocks. That's why I keep going back to the narrative that treasuries are not an inflation, uh, are not are not a hedge in an inflationary bear market. Other than last year, that is patently data-wise factually false. That's one of the one of the narratives I keep seeing on Twitter, and I, I keep showing it's false, right? It's just based on history. So um, that certainly could be something that could cause things to go wrong, right? That you end up having sort of a reoccurrence of that. But I keep going back to. I think what complicates is what what does the dollar do? During that. So if you were to resume the behavior of last year, there's a breaking point where the dollar is going to really break everything, right? Because part of last year's strange dynamic is not just treasuries failing, it's that the dollar was so abnormally strong against treasuries failing, right? So if you now kind of resume that behavior, 
with already an elevated dollar against all major other currencies, that's going it, it, to it will resolve itself because that will cause the deflation credit crisis on a sovereign level. Right. So I think it's, it's I'm not it's not to argue that it can't happen. What I'm arguing is that if it were to resume, it will at some point get corrected, I think, pretty quickly, given the starting point of an already elevated you know, greenback. Michael, you often talk about the conditions ahead of a melt up or a meltdown and the conditions currently favor a higher risk of a meltdown than a melt up in your view. But we get a bunch of questions coming in on positioning. How can we expect, or rather, find a risk reward leaning in a bearish direction when we have such a bearish positioning already? Yeah. Okay. So, so this is, I always use that line path matters more than prediction. Listen, if you were to have looked at any of the research at the lead lagger board, any of the tweets I was putting out, there were a lot of things I got right. I'm not patting myself on the back. Timing wise, I got a lot of things correct. It didn't matter for my funds, which are rules based, because you could have been right being defensive. Your signal could have all said, get out of stocks. But again, if your expression, like it is for me, was treasuries, it didn't matter because treasuries acted like stocks and in some cases worse than stocks. So the, the question is ultimately, what is the opportunity set you want to play with, right? If things are going to be difficult for equities for a while. I don't believe shorting works because shorting is, is just nasty from a whipsaw volatility perspective, right? It's not for everybody to do. Maybe there's some that can do it well. I'm, I'm skeptical because I've tested. It's very hard to do a lot of false signals there. Um, let's go back to the four main risk-off bear plays. Utilities, treasuries, gold, and the dollar. Okay, the dollar was the clear winner last year. Very elevated. Sure, can rise further, but I'd argue that that's probably not exactly the best way to play risk-off. Gold, I think, is interesting. Right, because gold has been left for dead for a while. It's getting some momentum. And to the extent that allocators believe that the bear market will last for a while, gold, because of its diversifier status, probably gets more demand. So I think gold becomes an interesting counter to equities from a cycle perspective. Treasuries now have yield, right? So at least in theory, treasuries give you more cushion being risk off and wrong, which was not the case certainly last year. Um, and then utilities. Now, utilities are tricky because utilities were, were also a real winner. They outperform meaningfully. Uh, same thing with staples and, and healthcare. Um, the problem is fundamentally they're also very overvalued. So you, you have this other strange dynamic where defensive stocks are very overpriced, but they're still lower beta, so investors flock to them, hmm. right? So I don't think that's sort of the preferred way of playing defense. Now, I would go. It's really just treasuries and gold. Those would be your two main plays. Hmm. And um, your point on the US dollar is absolutely spot on. Uh, I dipped my toes in the long treasury trade a couple of times during 2022 as well. But thankfully for me in naked dollar terms, and since I live in Europe, it actually ended up being okay anyway. I hate um, you. I hate you. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was a lifesaver for me, the good old US dollar. Before I leave you, Michael, um, let's have a bit of fun. Um, because, I mean... You get quite some feedback on Twitter for using the word imminent crash. So do you sometimes think about whether your rhetoric is too harsh when you call for a melt-up and a crash? What, what, what's your thoughts around that? Okay, so I believe the short term is far more observable than the long term. Just number one. So do weathermen. So do meteorologists. Right? I mean, that's a fact. You look at domains that deal with the business of forecasting. It's been proven 
that weathermen, meteorologists are the best at predicting the future, but only three days out in a 10 day forecast. So I believe the short term is far more observable than the long term, and the long term is nothing more than a rolling series of short terms. I make it very clear that I talk about conditions, right? That favored conditions meaning it's pouring outside. Why the hell wouldn't you want to slow down imminently? Right? Because you might have an accident if you don't. There is a timing component to any form of analysis, right? I think when it comes to this business of investing. And you have to get into the mindset around the weather, the conditions, not the mile marker that you crash, right? That you have to slow down when the dynamic is there. And most people are wrong when they slow down entering a storm until the one time when it saves their life. But you have to still slow down. I've used that analogy before. You'll get studies on car crashes. Most people factually tend to hit the brakes after the crash because their body is in motion. You have to be able to slow down in advance of the mile mark when the conditions are there. So the timing is purposeful because the short term is more observable. My work tends to be much more short intermediate term. I don't know if it's imminent now. I was much more confident around early December and you didn't have a crash, but you did have a nasty December. So I'll, I'll take some degree of credit for getting that analysis right. I think the key thing is when you think about rhetoric, focus, as I say many times over, look to the left of the equal sign, not the right. Look to what goes into the rhetoric. Why am I being so allowed and aggressive. Take an have an open mind to sort of what goes into the analysis rather than the conclusion. The harsh reality is that the rhetoric is what gets the attention. Those that really benefit from the rhetoric are those that actually look at the process. I perfectly agree. And it was a good explanation, a good answer to that question. And I may add on the discussion on weathermen that I think God created economists to make weathermen look good in comparison, right? At least that's my take, um, knowing quite a few economists, even in my own family. But um, in any case, Michael, once again, a great pleasure to host you to try and summarize today's discussion. Um, I think it's safe to say that the two of us agree that this, this inflation is kind of a theme now. And if we get inflation back below 4%, at least history tells you to expect correlations between stocks and um, and treasuries to, to sort of restore to normal, um, which means that treasuries will act as a safe haven again. But let's see. We could obviously be wrong once again, but it would be another outlier in case we are. Michael, thank you for joining us again on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I appreciate it. Let me just say uh, for the record, fuck lumber, because everyone's going to be screwed with lumber prices and their homes. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Fuck lumber. Let's conclude the show with that. But before we leave you, um, we have the meme of the day uh, and it's another meme of the meltdown meeting the meld up or rather the meld up meeting the meltdown. Here's your train. Thank you for watching. See you again tomorrow. What's up revolutionaries. Thanks for tuning in to the real vision daily briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.